It's a delight to have Caleb Pearson uh, on our team here at Fellowship Bible Church. Uh, I knew Caleb when he was just a twinkle in his mom and dad's eyes. Uh, he grew up here in the Fellowship Bible Church. He's married to Hannah, and they have a sweet little five-month-old, I think, uh, Samuel. And uh, as Caleb leads our, our student ministries here, he also uh, enjoys and spends time in God's Word, and he's going to share and Acts 18 this morning. So watch the screens as we prepare for Acts 18. Good morning. Everybody awake? You will be soon, if not yet. Uh, welcome as well to those joining us online down in our F3 service. Thank you for participating uh, in worship with us this morning. 60 days from now, uh, the National Football League returns. Now, that's a, that's a, a fact, but it's not inherently a, a fun one. So you might be thinking, why, why even mention that? Uh, it's, not, it's not in season yet, but it's already a season of change and anticipation for some, uh, like myself, because I'm a Green Bay Packers fan. So, uh, since 1992, okay, 31 years, since 1992, this team has had two starting quarterbacks. So the, the leader of the team as the season starts, two. To put that in perspective, uh, our very own Washington Commanders, which last I Googled is still their current name, they have had 22 quarterbacks since then, uh, as is the case with many teams. Now, though, a, a lot of eyes are on this, this Wisconsin-based Packer team with curiosity as to what will happen as this, this new quarterback is finally taking over. So we play the Chicago Bears week one, uh, no doubt high stakes this season. Uh, we actually have uh, a few people on staff, uh, namely John Avery, he's a pastor here. Uh, he's a Chicago Bears fan, so you can keep him in your prayers. But the point is the National Football League is, is already gearing up. Okay, organized team activities, or the league calls them OTAs, have, have long since begun. Uh, training camp starts shortly. And this whole NFL thing, it's a, it's a big deal to a lot of people. Not just uh, to our country and its culture, not just to the fans, but it's the livelihood and purpose of so many athletes. Because of that, whether they're in season or not, it, it doesn't really change their mentality. Uh, they take it seriously. It's what they're all about. That idea of taking things seriously, be it in season or out of season, happens even more so to be a biblical one. So we're going to see an exciting season unfold here at the end of Acts chapter 18. So go ahead and turn there if you're not already, Acts 18. And while you're headed there, you may recall last week that we learned a little bit uh, about Paul's travels 
Uh, We learned about those with whom he worked, those with whom he stayed for a while. We had an encounter with the local government, a response to some of the religious things that were happening. And we saw the gospel triumph in Corinth and beyond. We also, last week, took some time to learn about Paul's final words to Timothy. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3 into chapter 4. So in the realm of discipleship, the call was this, 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. He tells him, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That verse mirrors his original call to Timothy two verses earlier. So Paul's urgency on death row is essentially, brother, hear me twice on this. You're going to need to be ready because things can get wild. And for Paul, they often did. Last week, we realized that everything that happens to Paul in the book of Acts ends up qualifying him for ministry later in life, including his words to Timothy. So what we have here is the author Luke detailing Paul's travels, and sometimes I think the temptation for us as we read it is to just read it like a a GPS history log, to just kind of get through it, okay? We we get it. Here are all the names. Here are all the places. He, He visits all these places, and all these crazy things happen. It can feel like a geography quiz to read Acts if we aren't careful to say, okay, Lord, this text is profitable. For me, it's beneficial. It's a 2 Timothy 3.16 principle. So help me understand, Lord, how. How can this benefit me? So this morning, we're, we're really only covering the final four verses of Acts 18. And there are some companion passages I'm going to use to help with that. Earlier in the chapter, uh, look at verses 19 through 21 real quickly. Because this will explain the whereabouts of three people. Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila. Here's what he says, verse 19. It says, They came to Ephesus, and he, Paul, left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but taking leave of them, saying, I will return to you again if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. It's important to recap that, A, because Luke is not wasting Scripture. We were meant to know and understand that. And it's important because it sets the stage in three ways. First, Priscilla and Aquila remain in Ephesus. It's where they're, they're purposefully planted. After saving faith, after living life alongside Paul, they've now been deployed in a way, even though Paul is the one that's moving. Placed purposefully for God's plan, totally reliant on him now. Secondly, what, what about Paul? Well, Luke wants us to know he's gone. Okay, He left. Not only that, but he left at the peak of interest of him being there. So the gospel's still ready to move. People are actually craving this message that Paul's giving. Except whatever's going to happen, it's not going to be through Paul, which is the third thing. Whatever God is up to next in Ephesus... It will impact Priscilla and Aquila, and it will not include Paul, at least for now. And this is a good thing. We're going to see this morning that true discipleship is repeatable and reliant ultimately on the Lord. 
See, these stories we, we've been reading in the book of Acts, they're not the, the triumph of Paul. They're not the triumph of Paul and Barnabas and all these people that get an opportunity to teach and speak. It's not about triumphant men doing what we wouldn't dare. It's about the triumph of the good news of Jesus and how that story has spread all the way to where we are today. We wouldn't be doing this without it. And here's what happens. Follow along with me in verse 24. This is quite a season of opportunity. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Some time has passed, verse 27, and when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him. They even wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. This passage brings out three elements of Ephesian discipleship in this story. The first is uh, the prospect. Your sermon notes reflect this. The prospect of discipleship. So the question right off the bat is who is, who is Apollos and, and what's his deal? Uh, the name Apollos was short for Apollonius, and this guy, since birth, was favored in the realm of philosophy and education, and that's because he was born and raised in Alexandria, the, the Roman city of Egypt. That allowed him exposure to, to their higher education, this, this philosophy, amidst this royal port right off the, the Mediterranean Sea. So over the years, the Lord really grew this man into quite the prospect for teaching. Not only that, but, but handling Scripture. Look at verses 24 and 25, because we get to understand his resume quite clearly. He describes him as a Jew, an Alexandrian by birth, and he calls him an eloquent man. He's going to kind of explain what he means by that. So, he came to Ephesus, purposely planted, just like Priscilla and Aquila, and he was mighty in the scriptures. He clarifies further, this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. A rather unique passage. There are four things listed that we should acknowledge here, Luke certainly did, that basically prove his eloquence. How was this man so eloquent? First, says he was mighty in the scriptures. Now, does that refer to our Bible, the one we have now? Certainly not, right? The, the canonicity of scripture is still unfolding. So he's referring to the Old Testament text, the scriptures they'd have at that time. He knew them. Second, said he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. So what Luke is doing is he's cluing us into the fact that Apollos was, was raised and trained in a biblical context. 
So he certainly was not just enlightened from an Alexandrian standpoint. He happened also to be knowledgeable from a Christian standpoint. Godly influence was present in his story. Thirdly, he describes him as fervent in spirit. So what does that mean? Some of your translations might say, he spoke with great fervor. That word fervent, the Greek zeo, it literally means uh, to, to be on fire or, or seething, to be boiling over. So for whatever he was teaching and saying, whatever he knew and said to people about God, he did it with such vigor and such excitement. You, you couldn't keep a lid on what this guy had to say. It was impactful. Lastly, here's what we'll spend a decent amount of time on. It says he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, even though he was only acquainted with the baptism of John. We think, what? Well, well what, does that, what does that mean? Is, is this Apollos, is he, is he a farce, a, a fake? Is he a false teacher, an unbeliever? What's, what's going on here? If we're going to answer those questions, uh, we ought to recap what John's baptism actually was. So take your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel Mark chapter 1. I promise we'll be back. For now, turn to Gospel Mark chapter 1. This is a gospel account, this book, anticipating Jesus' three years in ministry. So instead of jumping forward from Acts into the epistles, the the letters that clue us in on what what is actually happening in all the churches we see in the book of Acts, we have a a precursor here instead. We're jumping back a little bit into the the three years of uh, anticipating Jesus' three years in ministry in the gospel accounts. Mark 1 starts out like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written... In Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Mark even describes him for us. John was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So what's the baptism of John? It's a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins, a demonstration in unison with Old Testament prophecy out of Isaiah. That's pretty cool because we have a prophecy That's not even about Jesus this time. It's a prophecy about this Jesus prequel, this John the Baptist. So he's here. This was a a great time of people turning from sin and being water baptized. Praise God for that. But like any good baptism service, it isn't just about what's being done, but about what's being said. So 
what does John say? What is he ultimately trying to do? Look at verse 7. He wasn't just dunking people. He was delivering a message. Verse 7. He was preaching saying, after me, somebody's coming who is way mightier than I am. This is the man who captured all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem to what he was doing. The one who is coming is mightier than I am. I'm not even fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptized you with water, so it just happened, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John, amidst this incredible scene, is basically saying, hey, you guys think this is great? How about you dry off and then buckle up? Because someone is coming. I am unworthy of touching this guy's shoes. John's concert was sold out. He had it made in the shade with what he was doing. He had the audience. He had their attention. And he tells them, you ain't seen nothing yet. I baptize you with water, but the Holy Spirit is coming for you. Apollos knew about this story, certainly up to this point. He knew about this, this man, Jesus, and what he ended up doing on the cross. Mark 1.1 clues us in on what Apollos knew, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew what the Old Testament has said, raised in the scriptures. He knew that John was preaching and explaining truth, but still referring to the future impact of Jesus on what baptism means for us. That means what Apollos didn't know was the full magnitude of Jesus' death and resurrection. Acts 18 is not saying the only thing Apollos knew was John's baptism. No, he was instructed in the way of the Lord. He taught accurately about our king. He knew more than John's story. What Acts 18 is telling us is the only thing he knew about baptism was John's. So this is important. What was the teaching of Apollos incorrect or inaccurate up to this point? No, it was just severely incomplete. Flip back to Acts 18 if you're not there already because our Ephesian tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila, are up to bat here. Uh, this brings us to the, the second element of Ephesian discipleship, and that is the potential. The potential of discipleship based on how the Lord is working in somebody else's life. Specifically, the potential of Apollos and his goal and abilities under their guidance. Look at verses 26 and 27. This Apollos began to, to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him. They went so far as to wrote to the disciples to be sure to welcome him. So this, this was not a uh, state of panic over false teaching. This was not a, no, Apollos, what are you doing? They're not taking him and putting him into a timeout trying to silence him. They're saying, okay, Lord, yes, Apollos, and here's the degree to which Christ has worked and what he has given us. Priscilla and Aquila disciple this guy. They double down on him and help clarify, here's what John was pointing towards. Here's what your knowledge of the scriptures is ultimately for, the work of Jesus and now the helper that's been given. 
no doubt the reality for us of being baptized by the Holy Spirit. There's an important breakdown between the the baptism of John and the baptism of the Spirit. We're going to see that in detail because this issue kind of continues to unfold, especially into Acts 19. Next week, Tim will unpack that. So the question for now is, what did this potential lead to? We'll see next week it continues to unfold, but in the meantime, for Apollos and his teaching, it makes a huge difference. So looking at our last two verses, we see the power of further training in God's word, the power of this discipleship. We know he wants to go, and we know they are encouraging him to do so, and that's something they wouldn't do lightly. So what happens? When he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Three things of note here. You're starting to see why these four verses kind of deserved their own week of study. The first thing is he helped Christians grow in their faith. So it's not just about raising the value of teachers that can convert people. It's about clarifying who we actually are in Christ. He helped Christians grow, and that's something that He just did himself. He grew. Everything that happens in the Christian life qualifies a person for ministry. True discipleship is repeatable. Paul wrote the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God made it grow. And we get this picture of how God is orchestrating his people to work in so many ways pointing unbelievers to accept this Jesus and believers to look more like him. The plan is unfolding. But he helped Christians grow. That's important. The second thing is, this guy happened to do it in public. Luke is very clear on that. It was powerful. It says Jews were being refuted, meaning literally proven wrong. So Luke doesn't tell us he was good at arguing with Jews He's actually telling us he was good at winning arguments with Jews, and people could see that. He would refute what they were saying. That's impressive. How did he he do that? Was it because he was an Alexandrian? Was it because he happened to have the the personality and temperament and the the, the smooth talking to, to persuade people? Luke is clear. He did it by the Scriptures, He could handle the word of God, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Not by his own willpower, not by the the tickling of ears as some sort of charismatic teacher. Certainly not by, by perfect speech and debate he convinced people about Jesus. But by biblical dependency, by golly, it works. He used the scriptures. Jesus is the Christ. Game over. We have it. Apollos comes full circle in his ability to impact others for this message. We can liken his story, uh, this Apollos, to to that of a a NASCAR race, uh, a bunch of of cars racing. You see, Apollos, he was already leading, an emergent leader around that turn. But as the race goes on, what an important pit stop for him to have with Priscilla and Aquila, who were able to give him what he needs to keep going. Their story now, by the way, wasn't, Paul left us here. 
Instead, their story was, praise the Lord, we, we're here for Apollos. Their time is not wasted. All in an effort to help him continue well with a better understanding of who Jesus is for those who believe and what it means to be in the Spirit. True discipleship is repeatable and reliant ultimately on the Lord. Priscilla and Aquila proved that to us, and now so does Apollos. May capable teachers be Christ-like disciples, so that their message is as true as it is compelling. Listen, there are a lot of eloquent speakers out there, a lot of messages being thrown. Even in churches, uh, you want to go find a, a Christian TED Talk? Easy. They're all over the place. Using concepts from the Bible, contrary to the way God would want them used, is a tale as old as time. So it's crazy, though, that the priority of the church is not actually knowing the Bible. Nobody threw any fruit at me. That's a good sign. The priority of the church is knowing Jesus Christ and the Bible is how we get there. Growing up at Sharando High School, I had a friend uh, who described himself as a bitter atheist. It's how he would describe himself. And this buddy, uh, he knew the Bible better than I did. I was born in this church. I accepted Christ at four and a half years old. 17 years old, this dude knew more scripture than I did. He called it the world's best fiction, wisdom for meditating. And if you ever asked him, oh, wait, what? So what's the deal? Are you a Christian? What do you, what do you believe about, about Jesus? This is something my, my friends and I from this youth group would, would ask him because we were very intrigued by this. What do you think about Jesus? Here's, what, here's his response to that. I wrote this down in my iPod Touch because this whole conversation was so exciting to me. His response was, why would it matter what I think about a fictional character that only exists to symbolize morality for man? That was his response. Forget the fact that centuries of scholars know that Jesus Christ is as non-fiction as it gets. Forget the fact that there were countless ways our God was, was working in my friend's life at the time. Forget how much scripture he knew and could recite. It's not about how much scripture we know. It's not about the Sunday school answers. It's about knowing Jesus and coming face to face with the wages of sin and the free gift of eternal life. Years later, that same friend messaged me out of the blue. This is how the conversation started, saying this. Caleb, it seems like there are a lot of godly messages in this rap album I've been listening to. He said, for whatever reason, this is the closest I've felt to God in years. Being good friends with him, I retorted back, you mean close to the God that doesn't exist, right? And he said, yeah, that's the one. 7.8 billion people are walking this rock. Every single one of them wrestling with the idea of God and who he is. Every single one of them bearing the image of Christ, having a God-sized hole in their hearts. 
A.W. Tozer once said, what a person thinks about God is the most important thing about them. It all comes down to this. Sooner or later, it will all come down to this. What do we think about this Jesus? Because of that, and in light of this, this Ephesian discipleship we get, just out of these few verses of Acts 18, I want to give you three reminders that can raise the value of discipleship in our personal lives. These are reminders from Acts 18, be it discipleship uh, for us from somebody else, be it discipleship from us towards somebody else, or both. We need to know that discipleship is essential. Discipleship is essential. Do we have any idea how easy it is in our spiritual walk, to coast until crisis. It happens all the time. We're experts at it, coasting until crisis. Do we have any idea how many parents uh, cool off on their parenting until their kids do something wrong? Do we have any idea what's at stake here? The possibility of learning the ways of God more accurately so that when we learn the ways of the world, we aren't thrown, we aren't tossed aside every which way by those waves of doctrine, those messages. This is essential, what we're after. What Priscilla and Aquila were after was essential. No matter what season of life we or those around us are in, discipleship should be a priority. And by discipleship, I know I've already said it like 30 times, I mean doing life together with Christ in mind. It's discipleship. It's life on life. Doing life together with Christ in mind. Promoting his truths, his encouragements, his word. Bridging the gap between what is happening in somebody else's life and what has happened and is continuing to happen in the story of Jesus. We can do that. I think it's essential that we do. We are always showing those coming up behind us in life what matters. They watch. They listen. Let's not miss the season of opportunity to proclaim Christ while we have the ears of those who need him. Here's the second thing. Discipleship is exponential. Discipleship is exponential. Paul discipled Apollos in Acts 18. Not by sitting him down at a, at a week-long retreat. Apollos wasn't lucky enough to get a ton of face time with Paul, the busy bee. How did he do it? Paul discipled Apollos by making tents with Priscilla and Aquila. People impacting people, impacting people. Did you know if you are discipling your kids right now, you're already discipling your grandkids? Did you know, if you, if you finally get around to getting coffee with that person that the Lord's been bringing to mind over the last couple weeks, and I encourage you to, you may be impacting and encouraging also whoever they see next, and not just them alone. You see, th this godly encouragement thing, it's contagious, I promise. That's a Pauline concept too. Here's 2 Timothy 2. This is a little bit earlier in that book I've been referring to heavily. You then, my child, he writes Timothy, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me 
in the presence of many witnesses, you entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We're playing the long game here, folks. This is not just about self-help. It's not just making sure we know what we need to know to handle life. How is the Lord working on the future? Who is he raising up? And how can we be used by him to make it happen? We're playing the long game. Here's the last one. Discipleship is eternal. Discipleship is eternal. Folks, are we, are we doing this to kill time? I mean, seriously. In, in here right now. Why are you here? Is it, you know, this always seems like a good thing to do. Well, my parents always did it, so now kind of here I am. Uh, no way. This matters, what we're doing and what we're after. It's going to last. It's going to matter forever. The same goes for when we leave. Our personal walks and the culture of Christ we can make in our daily lives. We ought to take these reminders and be excited and encouraged. Instead of wondering what's next, here comes Apollos. The Lord is moving. You are not without purpose, neither is he. Who's up? Who are we going to impact next? We ought to take these reminders and be ready in season and out because there's no time as good as now and there's no need as loud as this one. Look at what Paul tells Timothy right after he says, you need to be ready in season and out of season. Just listen to this. <laughs> Second Timothy 4, 3 through 5. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. And the call in verse 5, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, what God has planted you for, what he's called you to do. You want to know what's, what's happening in this up and coming generation that bugs me? You want to know what, what I think the, the, the sin issue is? If, if we had to summarize and specify, because spoiler alert, the issue is sin. The devil doesn't know new tricks. He's just been given new toys. If the sin issue, if you think it's shaping up to be the, the gender debate, that's one thing. Maybe the, maybe the sin issue is shaping up to be uh, this technology wave and what all the consequences of that. Maybe the sin issue of this up-and-coming generation is social justice reform. No, those are symptoms. Those are symptoms, both within the church and out. Ideology is running amok, and it's teaching falsehoods. This is what we're up against. Out there, our kids, your kids, are being taught that God made a mistake when he made them. And it's now up to them to make themselves. That's a myth. Out there, our kids, young people, are being taught that who they are online is more important than who they are in Christ. That's a myth. Out there, new spouses are being taught 
that marriage, yeah, it's a consideration, but it's not a covenant. That's a myth. And out there, believers are being taught God's word does not account for everything, and we have to adapt to today's definition of love and justice. That's a myth, among many others. There's a war for the mind. Everybody is easily choosing what they want to hear at the time and not what they need to hear that has stood the test of time. We need to be aware of this. But the church can act because Jesus himself has acted. We have been made capable. We can be that difference. Every season of opportunity we get in this world to proclaim Christ in this godless world, every opportunity we get is one worth taking. Recently, as women's collegiate softball came to a close earlier this summer, the Oklahoma Sooners uh, were live on air on ESPN. Uh, This team just won back-to-back-to-back College World Series. Here's what the interviewer asked them. How do you girls handle the pressure of the season? How do you find joy during the trials? That was the question. It's a pretty good one. Live on ESPN, here's how they responded. You cannot find fulfillment in an outcome, whether it's good or bad. She said, I think that's why our team is so steady in what we do and our love for each other and our love for the game because we know that this game is just giving us another opportunity to glorify God. She said, live on ESPN, I think once our team figured that out, that that was our purpose, and once all of us were all in on that mentality, that's what really changed for us. Her teammate joined in saying, live on ESPN, I think that's what makes our team so strong is that we're not afraid to lose because it's not the end of the world if we do because our life is in Christ and that's all that matters. Some of you may have seen this footage circulated a couple months ago. It went viral on social media and Christian circles captioned with the phrase, probably not what ESPN wanted to hear. But praise God they did. Because I watched that video the first time and I said, these girls are impressive. And then I watched it the second time and I said, their coach is impressive. What are we doing with the life we've been given and what is the message we're speaking? We have a living hope. (laughs) Praise God. We have the Holy Spirit. This Jesus, the stories are real. The tomb is empty. Nobody can argue Jesus back into the grave. They can just argue why he's gone. But he is living and active, and we've been made capable. He went to the cross, and he rose again. All the work on his shoulders so that we can put our faith in that. Born again, believers. And he tells us, he told them, I have a helper coming, this spirit. And because of that spirit, we can act Tonight, hours from now, we're having a a baptism service 
where we're going to get to hear the testimonies of believers, various ages, various life stages, various backgrounds, all different seasons of life, all pointing towards Jesus. So we're going to take after John. We're going to have a a water baptism, but make no mistake, Jesus is the one who changes lives. I can't wait for you to be able to hear what is being said in addition to seeing what's being done because this is what matters. What happens in this room this evening matters and it's worth celebrating. Jesus is the one who changes lives. He's the one who gives us his spirit. How do we know? For the Bible tells us so. All scripture's profitable? Absolutely, because it all comes down to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In July 1961, uh, Vince Lombardi started training camp for the Green Bay Packers. Uh, The season prior ended in a huge loss. They, They blew a fourth quarter lead. They lost the championship game. So when the players came in to to formally prepare for the season, they expected to to start where they left off, uh, work on ways to advance their game. They anticipated Lombardi would stroll in and start talking specifics. Maybe he would show show what they did last year, what they could work on, fine-tune some specific mistakes. Instead, when they sat down and began, Vince Lombardi held up a ball and said, gentlemen, this is a football That's how their season started that year. To be highly trained and ready is to be forever aware of the fundamentals. What does it all come down to? May whatever we do and teach, may however we disciple and speak, reflect the loving truth of Jesus and what he did for us. Let's do life together with Christ in mind. Let me pray for us. Father God, you didn't didn't have to come down from heaven's throne, but you did. God, we we don't have to sing here shortly, but I pray that we would. God, I pray that that this room would ring with a joyful noise in response to who you are and what you've done. Thank you for, for sending your son Jesus. Let there be no higher name in our life than you. May our homes, may our hearts reflect your son, your truth. May we be marked by biblical dependency and a radical love for Jesus that others will get to know him first or get to know him more. It's in Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen.